to the Very Well Mind podcast. We've interviewed over 100 authors, experts, entrepreneurs, athletes, musicians, and others to help you learn strategies to care for your mental health. This episode is hosted by psychotherapist and best-selling author Amy Morin. Now let's get into the episode. When it comes to good mental health, we often talk about the things that you can do to feel better, like get more exercise. And we'll say things like, you should eat healthy. But we don't really get into what healthy means. So today I'm talking to Dr. Drew Ramsey. He's a psychiatrist. But rather than focus solely on prescribing medication for depression or anxiety, he often recommends a change in diet. His new book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, discusses the latest brain science and mental health research. He shares how changing your diet can affect your brain and the specific recipes that can help you feel better. On today's episode, he shares the most important foods you should be getting in your diet right now if you want to have better mental health. Make sure to stick around until the end of the episode for the therapist take. This is the part of the show where I'll break down my guest strategies and share how you can start applying them to your own life today. So here's Dr. Drew Ramsey and the foods you should eat to stay mentally healthy and reduce anxiety and depression. Dr. Drew Ramsey, welcome to the Very Well Mind podcast. Thank you so much, Amy. It's great to be here with you. So I have been reading your book, Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, and it's a wonderful book. You made things simple. I'm somebody with a, with a really simple palate, so the idea of knowing what hemp seeds and chia seeds are was a bit outside of my realm of knowledge. (laughs) So in fact, as an experiment, as I read your book, I thought, okay, I don't know what a lot of these ingredients are and I don't know where to find them. Uh, Can you get them at the grocery store? Can you not? Uh, I found a lot of things you can actually order on Amazon quickly and easily, gets delivered to your door uh, within a matter of days. And uh, so I made some of your recipes, including the truffles, which happen to be a favorite here in our podcast studio. (laughs) Wonderful to hear. I, I guess the most important thing hearing that is, uh, is it affected or have you noted anyway in, in how you feel either just in getting those foods or eating them for a little bit? You know, I feel pretty good. And I find myself then th- throughout the day, I think, oh, I want another truffle. I'll have, a, have them in the fridge pretty much at all times. And I find it's really easy to just add seeds to something that I'm already eating anyway, like a smoothie or a salad or something like that. That's great to hear. And th- thanks for that compliment on the book. I, I hoped... I hoped it would uh, make things straightforward to people. I think mental health is very complicated. Nutrition feels very complicated these days. And the idea that, you know, I, I could um, use the latest science to kind of guide people to some of these really easy, easy choices, as you know, that, um, uh, you know, I, I think the evidence tells us now really can make a big impact in terms of how we feel. Yeah. So I spent most of my career as a therapist in rural Maine. And now in looking back, I feel sort of horrible about this. We, whenever we did an intake or an assessment on a new person that walked in our door, we had exactly one question about their diet, which was sort of, how's, how's your diet? And 99% of people would say good. And that would pretty much be it. And then we'd move on. Looking back, I think, oh, we could have done so much better in asking people about their diet. As a psychiatrist, how did you become so invested in knowing that somebody's diet makes such a huge difference in their mental health? Well, first, I'm glad that you asked. And for me, uh, what really led to my asking all of my patients that question and getting the same answer and then uh, working um, 
to develop a better set of questions. I think like anything, any mental health professional, when we go into that room, people kind of wonder like what's going on behind the scenes. And in our own minds, we have a narrative that we're trying to fill in the blanks. We're trying to understand something about your development. We're certainly trying to understand a lot about your symptoms, your functioning, and relationships, and the role of substances in your life, all this stuff. But we don't really have any way to organize food information. And so we ask that question, you know, tell me about exercise and diet. People say, ah, you know, I should probably exercise more. I try to eat healthy. And we say, oh, great. Yeah, you should eat healthy. And we move on. And, and, it, and so I got interested, one, just personally, I was a low-fat, vegetarian, sleepy, moody kind of guy throughout college or medical school. If you knew me in college or medical school, maybe that seemed apparent to you. And was really what I, following what I thought was the evidence, what medicine told us was really what we should do. I don't eat fat, don't eat cholesterol, don't eat salt. And that was kind of it. And there's also the same time where we were told you get your brain cells, 100 billion neurons, really the best collection of cells in the universe, uh, best collection of cells in the universe, just an amazing organ. And we were told that that's it. Like, don't lose too many of them because that's bad. And uh, the idea that both um, the dietary advice we were getting really wasn't very helpful to most people. And, and I think that e- even if it was scientifically accurate, you can just see the implementation of it has been a disaster. Everyone is obese and has diabetes and is pretty depressed and anxious. So that's not working for us. And it wasn't really working for me. Uh, the data started to come out about seafood, about omega-3 fats. And I got really intrigued. Like I had one of those questions, you know, a lot of us have where there's this thing we talk about all the time, omega-3 fats, omega-3 fats, trans fats. And I just had this like, I don't know, moment where I realized like, I don't really know where those come from. I don't really know what those are. You know, like I, I know they're supposed to be good, but I can't draw the chemical structure of it. I know they come from seafood. I don't know how. And it just really got me very curious. And then as I started to think about diet with patients and just hear like, I don't know, it was like the elephant in the room with some folks. People would come in mid-morning feeling anxious and panicky. I realized uh, they'd had like a big cup of coffee or they'd had a big bowl of cereal, right? Lots of carbs or no food. And here I'm trying to make some interesting interpretation about you know, where the anxiety's from. And, and I don't know, it felt like kind of a false signal in some cases. Now, now certainly food isn't the only thing in our mental health, but it, you know, in terms of my own interest, it, it kind of expanded from there. And then the data just started to show up. Uh, really interesting studies showing a very strong linear correlation between dietary quality like overall, like eat mostly good stuff or mostly not good stuff. Um, the correlation between that and mental health, depression, anxiety, dementia. Um, and it felt like as a brain doctor, I had to start including this in my evaluations, but also just how I talked with patients. And, and the more I did it, the more fun it was. And the more I learned, and I thought it just helped treatments both with you know, the notion that there are foods that are better for your mental health. And if I'm the mental health business, I want at least you to know about those. Um, uh, and then just also in terms of the patient conversation, you're a therapist, right? When you think about um, like how we take developmental history, we were never taught to ask this question. Tell me about what um, dinner time was like for you as a kid. And I started asking that question and I got, I got like the gold mine of what therapists want. You know, we just this really detailed accounting of how you're taken care of, what expectations you had about nourishment, whether there was security and food security in your house, whether your tastes and likes and preferences were paid attention to. And it's like, wow, this is good, not just for the nutrition part, but also this is good for the process um, as a psychiatrist and therapist. 
Yeah, because it's more than just food or what you eat, right? We all have a certain relationship with food, whether we look at it from a deprivation standpoint or it's something that was used maybe as punishment as a kid or maybe you got rewarded when you did something well, your parents took you out for ice cream. We all have an interesting relationship with food and how to how to eat, what to eat, when to eat it and what it really means to us, right? Yeah, and I like all those examples that you gave, I think are ways that we've really messed ourselves up with food. You know, that food becomes punishment, it becomes guilt, it becomes this like dilemma. Um, and and in in the new book, Eat to Be Depression and Anxiety, I just really ask people to take a step back from that. There's this chapter, which I, I felt very strongly about really wanting in the book, which talked about our clinical technique and what I've learned as a psychiatrist talking about food. And, and what's really struck me is how unhealthy our relationship with nutrition is, how unhealthy in some ways our relationship with science is, um, how easy we all are, like how we just get duped. Time and time again, whether it's like the carnivore marketers or the vegan marketers or the supplement marketers, it's just we uh, are really prone to being misled about nutrition and then guided down a path that generally leads people to eating a lot of processed foods and just missing out on the kind of obvious foods that are in the grocery store. I mean, we were talking a little bit beforehand. You're saying you got the book and you got curious about these foods, but some of them seem foreign to you and you didn't even know where to get them. And I was... Right. And I was curious, like, uh, as you told me that, like, which, which, which one of them? Because some of them, you know, obviously like red peppers, you know where to get cashews, but some of them are a little strange. And, and I guess that when you asked, where did this come from? I kept discovering these foods that were like, like, holy smokes, this thing is incredible for the brain. Like, I need to eat this. And then the reality for some of those foods, like, like you said, I don't exactly know where to get this or what this is or like, yuck, like anchovies. I'm from the Midwest. That's just like a disgusting idea. Some little slimy stinky fish in a in a can like who, who even knows how old that is and i besides put it on pizza what do i do with it and and i don't know it just led to uh, but i'm curious what other foods seem strangest to you um i guess like seeds i didn't i thought chia seeds were what you put on your chia pet and you grew something you I can do that with them you could do with <laughs> i didn't know people ate them um, however, I've discovered when you put them in something, you don't even really necessarily notice that they're there or they taste great because I haven't noticed them. Or hemp seeds. I've never heard of those either as something that one would eat. But again, I grew up in rural Maine where we you shot a deer and you ate vegetables out of a can. And I was a really chubby kid that went for quantity over quality. So in like the third or fourth grade, my lunch consisted of uh, a leftover Big Mac from last night because you could usually buy one, get one free. And I bring the cold French fries to lunch too. And um, that's what I thought was was good food. As I got older, I lost a lot of weight and figured out, oh, low fat is much better than anything else. And then the pounds came off. And then I've had phases in my life where I was a vegetarian, phases where I went back to eating more protein so I could get lean muscle. But for the most part, food has just become something that's like what you do to, to stay alive. I don't necessarily find tons of joy in eating. And therefore, I don't like to put a lot of effort into cooking or uh, preparing food because doesn't always necessarily seem like it's worthwhile. And despite living on a boat in the Florida Keys, I don't eat fish. That's sort of like one of my non-negotiables. And I grew up in Maine too, where everybody eats lobster and seafood. But I do take omega-3 uh, in pill form. But the idea of eating fish is uh, sort of one of those non-negotiable off the table ideas. All my nutritional psychiatry neurons are really firing right now in excitement because I think what you describe is where a lot of people are. And it's yeah. I think why nutritional psychiatry has become 
um, such an important movement. And, and for me personally, just such a, a gratifying way to be involved with people's mental health. Because what you described, I think, is, is all these interesting opportunities. And where a lot of people are, like food sucks, right? It's, it's like, you know, it, it's hard to make it maybe taste tasty. And sometimes it's expensive. It's disappointing. It, it's kind of onerous. And I would want, be really curious to get right into the joyfulness. And, and you make this really nice in your association, and I'm sorry to be shrinky here, but in your associations, this really nice link to almost being a little deceived, like cold Big Mac and cold fries, like tasty lunch. <laughs> right? Gross. And, <laughs> and, and, and I would bet that part of finding joyfulness for you is really in some ways establishing more of an eater identity. And then you are in the Florida Keys. I mean, it, it is, I'm really curious about the seafood part because I didn't eat any seafood till I was 30. I thought it was disgusting. Um, and now I eat everything that comes out of the sea. And, and I'm, I'm curious what, um, if you want to share, just when you think about seafood, like what, what goes on in your mind? Uh, like it's an automatic gag reflex, right? I write books on mental strength. So you think I could get over that? My dad used to cook salmon in our house and the smell of fish just nauseates me. So the idea of any fish... Even, I mean, I could kind of choke down crab once in a while, maybe if I had to. But other than that, like the thought of fish just disgusts me. So there are a couple of pieces that I used to have that too. And actually I had that about meat. I remember being in Mm -hmm. my college, I lived in the uh, Jewish cultural center for a year. And one of my housemates was um, browning ground beef in the middle of me being a vegetarian. And I I was just the most, I, I couldn't stay in the house. It was awful. And it's strange to me now because I, I make burgers and I grow meat and 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 what is that transition? And if we could think uh, with Amy, like what would be that transition, and is it even possible to enjoy seafood? And what would be the point of that? Just taking an omega three uh, supplement, and I would uh, guess as a kind of loose and strange psychiatrist here um, in the middle of the week uh, that there actually could be something really interesting in there for you, Amy, in terms of um, exploring non gag reflex in, in um, inducing seafood. And a couple of just, if you would, you're not asking for any tips and you haven't come for a nutritional psychiatry session, but I can tell for everybody listening, trying to transition into seafood, I can tell you a few of the things that helped me. I didn't just start downing oysters on the hash shell. I started with really mild light fish with a lot of lemon um, and lemon zest and butter on it, um, broiled. Um, then I discovered things like fish and shrimp tacos where I'm not getting this big chunk of fish that I got to contend with how much I don't like it. I'm getting little bits of fish. Um, sushi, I found really interesting and tolerable because sushi doesn't smell or taste like fish because it's so fresh that it, it, it shouldn't. And part of what that um, smell, that fishy smell, so the most important fat in our brain is a long-chained uh, omega-3 fat, DHA. And DHA has lots of, in its chemical structure, has lots of double bonds. That's where it kind of stores energy and in some ways why it can do so many different things for us. It sits in our cell membranes, but because it has so many double bonds, it oxidizes easily. And meaning, uh, and that's why if you put like a piece of steak on the counter versus a piece of fish, the fish is going to start smelling off a little faster as those omega-3 fats are oxidizing more. Um, yeah. And, and then there's locks. So for our audience who's just listening to this, you and I are on video, but just when you talk about fish, it makes my eyes water. Which This, this could be, we might, have to, we, we might have to do this one. We might have to do this one impatient. This might be right, impatient. I may, I may need like to that. hire you, but I promise I've been taking uh, Omega-3. So we had uh, Dr. John Umhow on our show a while back and he treats addiction and he talks a lot about uh, Omega-3s and um, 
that convinced me to to go ahead and take more omega three fatty acids in pill form. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sorry gotten... to be making you cry. I was thinking muscles. Muscles are really <laughs> interesting. I mean, a really different texture, really different eater experience. You can get really uh-huh. primal. Like, did you know the human Homo sapiens almost went extinct? Like, we got very. There were like two. They researchers estimate there were somewhere between like two hundred and a thousand Homo sapiens left on planet Earth, and and we were we were not going to be here. And we were uh, kind of cornered on the shoreline, apparently. There was this great book by Brett Svetko, one of my friends and colleagues, called The History of the Human Brain. And what got us through, people think, are bivalves and small fish. And that as we were there, we, we, we had this you know, kind of endless supply of food. And also those same foods are foods that um, evolutionary biologists think really helped our brain evolve. That as we get more minerals and more omega-3 fats... So we don't have to spend the whole podcast trying to convince you to to eat seafood. And lots of people don't like seafood and taking omega-3 supplement is something, especially when people see me for anxiety and depression, they've never eaten seafood. They don't want to eat seafood. I'm I'm curious because lots of people, we can make those long-chained omega-3 fats in our liver a little bit, but they're essential fats, meaning we have to eat some of them. And you really don't find DHA and EPA in any foods other than seafood. You know, there's some uh, people... You know, for example, chia seeds and flax or some plain. There's lots of omega-3 fats. So it's a short-chain omega-3 fat, ALA. Very important fat, great fat for you, but it's not as good as EPA and DHA. So, um, you know, maybe I'll come down to QS sometime. We can have like an intervention. Like, uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> this is like, you'll, you'll go in like crying and gagging and you'll come mm-hmm. out Sunday like shucking oysters and feeling amazing. Maybe not, maybe not. I'm reaching for well, the you scale. Know. I've been working on it and I ate like crab not that long ago and a lobster taco. Um, so I'm making progress slowly. A lobster taco. I think the lobster taco is a challenge. I think <laughs> I, I would, yeah, but I'm excited to hear about those. That, that That's, that's good progress. And a and crab, <laughs> I think a crab cake is a great one. You know, there, I know your dad ruined your salmon relationship, uh-huh. but I'm sorry about that. And that would be a longer treatment than this podcast. Um, but, <laughs> but there's a great, recipe. I'd love someday if you would be able to make this and enjoy it. It would just be so interesting if that could happen. Um, it's using canned salmon, which I thought was really disgusting because it just looked like dog food or cat food to me. And 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 then as you talk about brain food with folks, you know, the question of budget, privilege, access really just comes up a lot. And I really, coming from very rural America, I, I actually wrote the book and I'm living right now in Crawford County, Indiana, which is a food desert, poorest county in Indiana. So I wanted to make sure that almost everything that was in the book you could buy at a store like Walmart. That this wasn't about, like, I don't know, East Coast, New York privileged food. I think some people think I'm from New York, and but no, like I'm a Hoosier. And so there's a canned salmon burger recipe that one is really easy to make. And I know this because it's one of the first um, fish recipes my kids have asked for. Like, Dad, will you make those wild salmon burgers again? And then I started to cry, actually, right there on the spot. <laughs> and... And I, I like um, these because, again, wild salmon in a can is very inexpensive. You just mix in some sort of binder. I, I will grind up like gluten-free crackers or we put in, a, um, you know, there's a couple of different versions of this in the book. Uh, and then you can serve them with a variety of dipping sauces, which, again, not trying to like hide the flavor of the fish, but just trying to let folks like Amy kind of begin to access this if possible and, and um, you know, not be gagging it down. Do it in a way that's enjoyable. All right, I'm going to work on this and see, what, see how I the, the, the lobster taco is tough. I mean, that's a, like t- lobsters. A t- I'd go with the small shrimp and I'd uh-huh. try like a really like 
like a, a, a nice fried fish taco with a lot of lemon juice, tartar sauce, and veggies on there, like little like red cabbage coleslaw and a good corn tor- tortilla. That would be my neck. That would be my prescription, doctor. I've, I'll see you next week. All right. I'm on it. Now, tell me, what are one of the things I liked about your book is you talk about certain nutrients that most Americans are missing and you give the statistics on it. What are some of the biggest things that most of us aren't getting enough of in our diet? There are a number of nutrients Americans just don't get. This is USDA data. So there's vitamin E. Vitamin E, 96% of Americans don't meet the RDA. It's a fat-soluble nutrient that protects your brain. I want more of that. Zinc, a big part of the book focuses on shifting people to the new, uh, a new model of thinking about mental health, which is to one that focuses more on brain growth and neuroplasticity as opposed to serotonin. Everyone's like stuck on serotonin. I'm like, no. It's like 1992 anymore. Like, come on, like everything else has changed. We have some new cooler brain molecules to focus on and, and kind of be obsessed with. And BDNF is the one, uh, one that I really focus on in the book because it promotes brain growth and the birth of new brain cells. And I told Amy at the beginning, you know, when I finished medical school, they told you like, here's your neurons, good luck. And now we understand you give birth to new brain cells uh, in adult life. And there are a number of triggers that uh, promote that. That's also, by the way, how antidepressants work, how psychotherapy works, how exercise works in terms of promoting mental health. It all comes to this common pathway of BDNF. And so a nutrient like zinc, about half of Americans don't meet the recommended daily allowance. Zinc is intimately involved in the promotion of more BDNF. Um, uh, Some other ones, uh, folate, vitamin B12, uh, especially, you know, that's of concern. Uh, I know every vegan who's on it is you know, sure about their B12 levels. But what gets missed in the vegan and plant-based movement is there are a lot of people who didn't get the memo. Uh, There's a study, the Epic Oxford study, looked at male vegans in the UK and found that 52% of them were frankly B12 deficient. So this isn't just they're not getting enough every day. It's actually, they've been doing that for so long that they don't have a major required component of a healthy brain floating around in their bloodstream. And what happens then is your brain begins to shrink, you get depressed, and then you get dementia and psychosis. It's like very... uh, So this is unfortunately what happens now is people say, wow, this sounds awful and complicated. I'm going to take a multivitamin for an insurance policy. And that's, again, I think a really bad move, really bad move. Because it's, it's, it's giving up in the most important fight you have, in my opinion, which is to fuel your brain. It's like the best asset you have, every good thing that's going to happen in your life, all the love, all the dreams, all the hopes, all the creativity, all the work, all that stuff, all centers around your brain. And so you'd think that we'd really, you know, we'd take good care of it. Like I stopped carrying my iPhone in an iPhone case. Got it right here with me just to show you. And I'm doing all right. This is like, this is like six months in. I just have a, a little crack or two. And the reason I'm doing that is because I realized this phone is like a freaking miracle. If I was in high school and they're like, hey, here's this little screen. You can do anything you want on it. I'd be like, wow, I'd have a little golden case I'd carried around it. But instead, I was like throwing my phone to people with the case. I decided, you know, this thing is precious. I'm going to take care of it like it's precious. And I, I, I kind of feel we've done the same thing with our brain. And, and in some ways, obsessed with what you were talking about um, in terms of food, quantity, pleasure, uh, getting into this really fun game of like, let's feel really guilty and awful then let's feel really hungry and restrictive. And there's so much more to the human experience with food than that. So 
sorry, you asked me about nutrients. Those are some ones that people aren't getting. And, and, and instead of the multivitamin route, I'd really encourage you. My last book, Eat Complete, looked at the 21 most important nutrients for brain health and tells you all the top foods. And you can easily get all of the nutrition you need only from food. After all, we didn't know about any vitamins. Get this, 1912 is when we actually isolated and discovered and named the first vitamin. And so prior to 1912, a lot of cool stuff happened to humans. No vitamins involved, just healthy food. And how do we know what we're deficient in? Is it if we just keep a food diary, is that going to tell us pretty quickly? Do you recommend people get any testing done? What's the best way to find out? Anytime patients are struggling with depression or anxiety, when I meet them, I make sure and complete a medical workup. That's just responsible medicine. You should have your thyroid checked. You should have uh, B9 and B12, folate and B12 checked. You can get your complete blood count, which gives you a sense of your iron. You can also get your iron checked. So, so those are some that we, we uh, check. Others, I don't need to check the level. I know that Amy omega-3 status was low. She started omega-3 fat. It got higher. Um, I know, uh, for example, that um, we don't measure vitamin E. But if you take a dietary history, did you eat avocados, olive oil, or um, almonds? last week? Because if you didn't, you didn't eat any vitamin E. And, and so there is a way by taking a dietary history. And in the book, I kind of guide people through this and how we do it in the clinic. And then focusing on the food categories that have the most of these nutrients. Um, that's really the way to, to be nutritionally complete. And, and of course, this is in the context of people have intact digestive systems. I mean, I appreciate some folks are, are prescribed supplements for really good reason. I'm not here to shame supplement takers. It's just, I, I do like to set a goal for myself and, 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 and for people if possible to really focus on getting our nutrition from food. And the other reason is that there's more than just these vitamins and minerals. There's phytonutrients, which are plant-based nutrients that, that you know, they're not having a central function in our body, but our cells recognize them. And they turn on all these genes that promote health and decrease inflammation. And then uh, nutrients like fiber, 68% of Americans don't get enough fiber. Fiber, fiber like it feeds the fire of you. This a whole new concept in medicine of focusing on the microbiome. We can't have a brain episode without saying the word microbiome. Amy, you say microbiome now, so we can make sure that we pass muscle. microbiome. Okay, definitely there get we that go. in there. All right, good. We said it. So, so again, why is fiber important? Because it feeds the microbiome. These are all the bacteria living in your gut. Like that, you know, sounds gross, but actually, we now understand this is a microcosm of biological activity and really a regulator of your metabolism, your levels of inflammation, and it really impacts things like your mood, your cognitive abilities. Uh, so, you know, the idea that we're just gonna, you know, eat big, eat cold Big Macs and French fries and like chew up our Flintstone vitamin and that's healthy living, uh, that 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 is like the most ridiculous false bill of goods that human health has ever been sold. If you had to pick three foods for people to start eating that most people don't, what would you say is most important? Can we just focus on the three foods I want you to start eating or does it have to be? Sure. Yep. Okay. Yep. Go ahead. <laughs> well, so I heard Amy fix kind of focus on the chia and the hemp seeds. And, and, and those are, those are a couple of components of the book that are easy ways to add in fiber and nutrients. But I, the ones that I, I'd be really, um, curious about your relationship with would be pumpkin seeds. Pumpkin seeds are a top source of tryptophan. I, I think also maybe it's a food that you haven't included in your kitchen. They're great. You can chop them up and I put them in my smoothies every morning. They blend up really well. They're, they're a good source of um, zinc and magnesium, two of these essential brain nutrients. I talk about 12 essential brain nutrients or antidepressant nutrients in the book. Um, so pumpkin seeds. Uh, I... Um, 
I want to throw seafood in there, but I'm, I, I know that we've been seafood heavy. So let, I'm going to say four and any seafood, particularly fatty fish, particularly upping your anchovy gain. Um, I have a guy on my Instagram. I have a great reel of a gnocchi that I make with sardines. You can also make it with anchovies that again, I didn't like any of this stuff. This is like, I create my mouth starts to water when I think about this pasta because by cooking the anchovies or sardines a little bit with lots of garlic and pine nuts and maybe a little tomato paste, it, there's no fishiness. It's just this amazing umami richness. Um, anyway, so pumpkin seeds, I get really curious on people supercharging their microbiome and not doing that with probiotics, but doing that with, uh, natural probiotics and natural probiotics are fermented foods. The most powerful of those is kefir. Some people call kefir. Some people call kefir. Uh, it's a fermented yogurt product. And I encourage people to get a non-flavored uh, full fat version and use it in your smoothie. And the reason is if you look at those probiotics that you're getting sold in the supermarket, like two, maybe five, maybe 50 billion colony forming units. That's how you measure how powerful. So a glass of kefir, one trillion colony forming units, just much more powerful, much more potent. And again, we've always had traditional uh, fermented foods. It's part of a traditional diet. And that's really what the data tells us, a Mediterranean style or traditional style diet, meaning no processed foods. That's the key for brain health and mental health. So so then chocolate, dark chocolate. And this isn't a marketing gimmick, just dark chocolate is really in the book and in my meal plans to, to have you challenge your capacity for pleasure and joy. Uh, that if it, dark chocolate is a great brain food, it's a fermented food, although you don't get many live bacteria at all in it. But just to note, um, when things ferment foods, bacteria ferment foods, they just do interesting things to them. Uh, dark chocolate's a great source of iron, magnesium, and fiber. All these nutrients we're talking about, you have to get a dark chocolate bar and you want that number where it says 70 or 80%. The higher, the better. I don't go below 70 for myself. And don't like do that thing where like, oh, it's like my caramel praline dark chocolate covered uh not that dark chocolate it's solid dark chocolate or something else that you know a brain foodie would approve of if it's dark chocolate with almonds awesome if it's dark chocolate with um spicy peppers in it awesome right there's uh but basically focus on you know fruits and nuts if there's going to be anything in your chocolate and those would be three foods and, and actually it's just, just a little more of science daily dark chocolate eaters there's a strong correlation between daily dark chocolate consumption and about a 60 to 70% decreased risk of getting a depression diagnosis. There's some studies in medical students that actually eating dark chocolate daily reduce their stress. I mean, if you can reduce stress in medical students, that's like, it's like a miracle drug, in my opinion, having gone through medical school is somewhat stressful. So, um, and, and then there's even a study that came out of Columbia, Scott Small, a neurologist, looked at an extract from dark chocolate and found that individuals reversed age-related memory decline, meaning I was in my 60s and like my memory's going downhill. I took this flavanol extract and my memory looked more like I was in my 40s again. So uh, very, very cool molecule in there. So those would be the three foods, at least to get started, that I would think that we're missing plants. And Amy, it's hard because I think in food categories. So my little rhyme I tell people is seafood, greens, nuts and beans, and a little dark chocolate. And uh, and we talked about nuts. We talked a lot about seafood. We didn't talk about leafy greens. And just my, my tip about this is people are doing greens somewhat wrong. Because when I see leafy greens, people just think salad. 
Like right. salads are great. Salads are, I like salads. There's so many other ways to incorporate leafy greens into your life. And the reason it's such a great food category is it's all nutrients. It's like nutrients and water. A, a cup, a whole cup of kale is 30 calories. Now, and for those calories, you, you get uh, 600% of your daily need of vitamin K. You get over 100% of your vitamin C. Uh, you get all these interesting uh, phytonutrients you get folate, you get fiber, you get a little protein. There's just all this stuff in there for just 30 calories. And that's why I'm always mixing leafy greens into my soups and stews. Or one of my favorite recipes in the book, we give you a pesto formula. There's a six-week plan that the book ends for that kind of walks people through each of these food categories, really tries to help you set specific goals, and then gives you recipes. Ooh, ooh, here's a good one for you, Amy. Dashi. Have you ever made dashi at home? No. Oh, I'm gonna, I think this is going to change your life. All right. So if the salmon burger doesn't. But I do dashi. Okay. So dashi is a seafood broth. If you've ever had, do you like ramen noodles? Yep. All right, good. You like dashi because that really delicious, smoky, wonderful broth the noodles are floating in is called dashi. It's a broth that's made of a little kombu seaweed um, and uh, bonito flakes. And, and bonito flakes are tuna that's been... Uh, it's been fermented, dried, and smoked. I think it's dried, fermented, and smoked. Um, and then every uh, Japanese home, uh, the traditional home used to have this little, um, it was like a, 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 a little, um, I'm spacing on the word for it, but they could shave off a little bit, uh, little flakes of this tuna and make a broth out of it. And so the way you do this is very simple. You, you get some bonito flakes, you get some good water, you get a big piece of kombu seaweed, you put it in, heat it up, you pull the kombu out, and there's a recipe in the book before it boils. And then you straight out the bonito flakes and add a little bit of soy sauce or Bragg's amino acids. And, and you have the base for you know, incredible ramen. Uh, but also, I just found it, you know, that whole bone broth craze, I wasn't so into that. But boy, I found that when I was having some gut issues, I just, I'd just drink a little of this in the morning. I'd have a little you know, in the day and I just found it's a really filling, delicious beverage. So everybody else got pumpkin seeds, kefir, dark chocolate, and some seafood recommendation. Uh, Amy gets a dashi prescription to go with her salmon burgers. All right, I'm on it. A couple more questions for you. So one of our questions uh, is about omega-3s. How much should you get? Let's say somebody really can't do the seafood thing and they decide to go with a supplement. How much do you recommend in a day? So as a psychiatrist, I generally prescribe omega-3 fats in the context of depression and uh -huh. anxiety. And the studies have had, it, it's been challenging. The data signals, if I, it finds statistical significance, but it's clinically insignificant, meaning that if you treat depression with omega-3 fats, you'll get people one point or two points better on like a Hamilton depression rating scale. I, I, the studies though that seem better or more positive tend to use a higher dose, more like one to two grams or closer to two grams. And that's hard to get in pills. And so when I put people on fish oil, I generally have them uh, take a teaspoon of lemon-flavored fish oil in the morning, trying to get, it's about 1.7 to 2 grams. Um, but that's, that's the dose that um, the studies seem to indicate help most with depression. Okay, awesome. Are you, what's your thoughts on taking supplements in addition to food? Because I know a lot of people say, okay, I still take vitamins or I'm, uh, I need to take supplements in this one area as opposed to just trying to get everything from their diet. I think it's a bad idea. I think it's misinformed. I would kind of go Jerry Maguire. I'd say, show me the data. And then I'd say, show me the money. Because I'm not sure that was Jerry Maguire. But if we look at where is the data that supplementation benefits human health? So in the Women's Health Initiative, 
taking a multivitamin was most strongly correlated with an increased risk of death. Oh, wow, especially for supplements that contain copper. So, you know, th- that that's kind of doesn't make the headlines. And then I also just, again, want you to think about your brain as uh, really more precious than your iPhone or your car. You know, you wouldn't just like throw some additive. If you have a fancy car, you wouldn't say like, you know, here's some gas. I'm going to throw this special additive in the tank. I just picked it up at the, uh, you know, uh, by the checkout counter because it says it helps my car run better. I don't think you'd do that. But you do that to your brain all the time. And it's like, wow, somebody said this was good for my brain. Uh, and so I'm taking it now. I also just remind people, everything you put in your mouth, your body has to process. It's not just, a, you know, it seems like, I guess it is a tube from one end to the other, but, you know, it doesn't just flow through there. You absorb all of that iron or magnesium or whatever, and then you've got to pee it out or poop it out and, or process it through your liver. And and so I, I, I think people have this fantasy and this huge placebo effect to taking supplements. They have a fantasy that it's going to keep them healthy, even though there's not data to support that. Um, and yeah, I, I would, well, the way I handle this clinically is I often meet people who take a lot of supplements and some folks are really clear they've had an effect on that. They have personal data. This made a difference for me and, and they've tried to go off of it. and It doesn't work. But most people I think just take a lot of things and haven't really thought through whether, you know, what I hate to see the most is when people are taking a lot of things, lots of supplements, and they're still really feeling awful. And, and, I, and I wonder, why does the supplement industry get such a pass and the pharmaceutical industry is always in trouble? And, and I'm not anti-pharma or pro-pharma. It just really strikes me that oftentimes people are taking you know, 10 different supplements. Their depression and anxiety isn't better. And, and the idea of taking a medication is, is you know, somehow like compared to like taking a poison or a toxin. And I find it really, um, uh, again, misinformed. If you look at the actual data around supplements in the supplement industry, it's really, um, uh, I guess it's equally concerning in terms of a lot of biased data, a lot of money on the table. Um, and the difference is, it's a big difference, that the pharmaceutical industry has to deal with the risk of its products and the supplement industry does not. And and if uh, my first book, The Happiness Diet, we did a uh, hundred reasons not to take supplements for nutrition. And, and that was in part inspired as a young doctor. I did not know about this. And I found on the internet, there's this FDA database of all the supplements in America that are recalled every day. There are thousands of them. And there are these tragic stories of, you know, someone taking some natural Zen calm sleep supplement because uh, they're a truck driver and they can't sleep and, you know, crashing and killing multiple families because there's a, uh, an analog of a very powerful medication in there. So, and, and that's, again, it's not regulated. Um, if I wanted to create a supplement today and, and send it out, it's just, it's not like there's an FDA looking over that until someone is harmed. You're right. I know a lot of people that would take a handful of supplements without thinking twice, but if they were prescribed a medication, would be really hesitant to take it. It's fascinating, right? And, and the difference yeah. between those things, one is evidence, uh, and, and two it is um, the risk. Everyone's worried about what are the long-term risks of antidepressants. And, and I appreciate that. I prescribe these medications. You know, no, I, I certainly don't want to be giving anything that's harmful to patients. Um, but that's been studied, been monitored. Now, what's, what are the long-term risks of, of, uh, um, or benefits of supplementation? There's really less data on that. 
So one of the things I appreciated about your book is you make it clear this isn't a diet plan. This isn't a, a rigid, regimented thing that you have to do. Instead, you just start introducing these foods slowly over time. If somebody wanted to, to start changing their diet, in addition to reading your books, taking your courses, learning more, what's the first step that they should take? I think the first step that I, I would ask people to do is to um, start taking uh, a deep, calming breath before they eat anything, whether it's a fast food sandwich uh, that you had to grab. I have to grab that sometime. Or a sliced pizza. I eat that stuff sometimes. Um, just to pause that before there's any action that you're going to be successful in, in improving the brain healthiness or overall nutrient quality of your diet, it, it starts with awareness. So often people would jump into action. You know, they hear some expert like me or someone else say like, cut this out or cut that out or add this in. And, and they don't sort of take a step to really expand their own personal awareness of what works for them uh, and of what that means to them. And so I would ask first that people become much more mindful of every time they're raising their fork to their mouth and thinking, really simple question, is this good for my brain? Like, All right. Makes sense. Because I think most of us are, we don't think twice about what we eat. We just put it in our mouth. Uh, last question for you. How soon could somebody expect to see results if they start changing their diet? How long will it take for them to feel better? Sounds like it worked pretty quickly for you, Amy. I, yep. I would say that there are two parts, three parts really of the feeling. I think the first is getting informed and having confidence. You go into the grocery store, you go to the farmer's market, you go to Amazon, and you're ordering stuff, food, for a very specific reason, for a very specific reason, to, to fuel your brain, your most important asset. Um, I think those uh, benefits are pretty quick. I, I've heard of a, a few wonderful stories from my clinic. Of, you know, I'll get a, car so, a call sometimes from like a mom and a daughter on the way back from a grocery store. And they're excited because they've gone and the grocery store looks different to them because they're mining for brain health. The second effect, I think like all antidepressants, whether it's a psychotherapy or medication or ECT, or uh, they, they take a little bit. And that's because most of these are fighting inflammation and improving brain growth. And that's really what food's supposed to be doing. So I think the more powerful antidepressant effects in the studies, you're talking uh, four to six weeks. Um, and uh, it, it, there was one study of Australian uh, college students who were eating a poor quality diet. They were depressed. They were given some instructions about how to eat for better brain health, given a little olive oil and some nut butters and nuts. And they had significant effects in terms of decreased stress, depression, and anxiety at three months, and it was maintained to six months. So, uh, um, and so I guess I was thinking of those three time phases, the immediate phases of being a little more confident eater and being empowered and doing something. And the thing that I like about food that I like better than supplements or meds or even psychotherapy what I love about it for myself and for my patients is it's yours. It's your choice. You're empowered to do it the way that you want to do it. You know, it, it's, um, and, and I hope that the thinking about food in these food categories helps people do that. Like I've, I've done a lot of work with kale. You don't have to ever eat kale. Like don't tell the kale mafia I said that because I'll disappear, but you don't. I'm a big on sunflower sprouts right now. Um, but Having a variety of leafy greens that you enjoy, maybe you've never had, have you ever had sunflower sprouts? I know. Uh -uh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. You're going to like those. Okay. So I'm going to put that on your list. You have a lot of homework from this podcast because sunflower sprouts, a little bit of olive oil and lemon juice. Uh, you don't need a lot of an amazing, probably one of the most amazing greens on the planet in terms of nutrient density, but gosh, they're just, they're a little bit like vegan veal though. 
a sunflower sprout because if you think about it, that little sprout would become a whole sunflower. And instead, you're just eating it when it's a little diploid two-leaf baby. It's it's kind of sad to me sometimes. <laughs> All right, I'm on it though. I'll be on the lookout. Uh, well, Dr. Drew Ramsey, thank you so much for being on the Very Well Mind podcast. You've inspired me and I'm sure you'll inspire lots of our listeners too to start eating in a different way. Thank you, Amy. It's a real treat. Thank you for all your work promoting better mental health and helping people really take care of their minds. And I really hope to hear some follow-up from you in terms of uh, sunflower sprouts and wild salmon burgers, maybe, maybe, and some of the other foods that we talked about that I, I hope will uh, um, will help really uh, in a shift that um, you were very open about in the beginning of, of being in a stance with food of kind of meh. And I wonder if there's something that can happen because you have such a wonderful mind and such a wonderful brain to have food kind of more directly related to that and feeling that uh, for you. And and it's a real treat to meet you. And I'd love to hear some follow-up on that. And everyone, thank you who's listening. Thank you so much for your time. I'm I'm most active on Instagram at Drew Ramsey MD, but I also have a bunch of uh, downloads on my website for free in terms of how to actualize this, some other antidepressant foods and, and how to do brain food on a budget. And that's DrewRamseyMD.com and, and check out our courses and the other books. And, uh, and I, I look forward to engaging with you. Thank you. We'll link to everything in our show notes and everybody should go to your website and take your quiz too, because you have a great quiz that can help people learn about their diet and what they should do differently. Thank you, Amy. Welcome to The Therapist Take. This is a part of the show where I break down my guest strategies and share how you can start applying them to your own life. Here are three of the strategies that Dr. Ramsey recommended that I think are a really good idea. Number one, start becoming more aware of what you eat. So Dr. Ramsey recommends that you start paying attention to your eating habits because there's a good chance that you might do something like keep junk food on your desk and mindlessly eat. Or maybe you just eat whatever someone else in the house cooks for you. You might not spend much time actually thinking about what it is that you're eating. Simply becoming aware of your habits can be a good start. And that's true for just about any change you want to make in your life. For example, studies show people who write down what they're eating start making healthier choices. Or people who just keep a really simple log of when they're smoking a cigarette tend to smoke a lot less. So just start paying attention to what you're eating every day, and it might inspire you to start making some healthier choices. Number two, create a plan to change your diet. Dr. Ramsey also talks about the importance of having a good plan in place. That's also essential when you want to change any habit. If you just decide that you're going to eat healthier, but you don't plan on what foods you're going to buy or what recipes you're going to make, you won't actually follow through and do it. Anytime you make a change in your life, it's important to have a good plan. On the other hand, though, you don't want to use planning as an excuse to put off getting started. So sit down, create a plan for this week, and make it happen. And number three, start incorporating healthy foods into your daily routine. Again, we eat mostly out of habit. You likely buy the same things, reach for the same snacks, and order the same thing when you eat at restaurants. So Dr. Ramsey recommends incorporating more healthy foods into your daily routine. You might exchange one snack for a healthier snack or start eating a healthier breakfast, and then just see what happens. Keep in mind that eating healthy food doesn't balance out unhealthy food, though. Eating dark chocolate covered in caramel isn't exactly a healthy choice. So you might also look at cutting out your least healthy habit. Give up that one nightly bowl of ice cream or skip the coffee culotta. Remember, you can always try changing your diet as an experiment. 
Try something for 30 days and then see how you feel. So those are three of Dr. Ramsey's strategies that I highly recommend. Become more aware of what you eat, create a plan to change your diet, and start incorporating healthy foods into your daily routine. If you want more information on how changing your diet can reduce or prevent depression and anxiety, go check out Dr. Ramsey's book, Beat to Eat Depression and Anxiety. Thank you for listening to the Very Well Mind podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share the episode with your friends and family and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the Very Well Mind podcast, you can head to verywellmind.com slash podcasts.